0: Empires are supposed to be a thing of the past, but very big countries with global reach are becoming more entrenched. By 2050, almost 40% of the world's population will live in just four polities, India, China, the US and the EU. So in what respects are these imperial entities and is there a future for small states? Well, Alastair Roberts has written uh, Superstates, Empires of the 21st Century. Welcome to you. Oh, hi. It's a pleasure to talk with you. And you're basically saying that the, the age of empires has given away to to sort of an age of superstates.
1: That's right. So if we look at India, for example, by 2050, it will have a population of 1.7 billion people, which is uh, unprecedented in human history. That's four times the size of the British Empire at its peak. And unlike polities in the past of that scale, unlike, unlike empires of the past, it's it's going to have a population that's mainly urbanized that's literate that's mobile it's going to have a population that percolates a great more and and the the, the question that sort of motivated me to think about this book was how do you govern polities at this scale and, and what is it like to live in them and the, and the argument in the book is essentially that these these four polities are sort of blends of modern states and age-old empires they carry both the Burdens or liabilities of empires of the past, but also the burdens of post-World War II modern states.
0: Yeah, I mean, you say one issue is what it's like to live in them. I mean, another must be how durable they are, because empires are not durable, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. If you if you look at the actually uh, oddly burgeoning literature on empires, one of the principal themes, and this has been true, of course, for many centuries, one of the themes is that empires are transient, empires rise and fall. Uh, scholars who have attempted to quantify the lifespan of empires usually say that the average uh, lifespan is about 120 or 130 years with a great deal of variation. But the, but the theme in the literature on empires is basically fragility, that these things are ephemeral or, or transient creatures
0: yeah well let's go through what you could describe as a sort of a, 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 a timeline of progress starting with empires so empires you just said fragile because they're big they've got they got poor communications they get invaded why are they fragile my sort of t- take on governance
1: is that all states are wrestle with the sort of the predicament of figuring out how you create a governing structure that is going to work given the hazards that you face. And the hazards could relate to hazards of internal um, dissension or external evasion or problems of dealing with economic shifts or problems in demographic change, migration, disease, and so on. There's a a bundle of hazards that all countries, all governments have to deal with. But the the thing about empires in the past and superstates today is that the range of hazards is magnified just because of the sheer scale and diversity of these polities.
0: Yeah, but when you when you move it forward to super states, what do they actually have in common? I mean, uh, uh, they're big, but apart from that?
1: Well, I would argue that they've got, uh, what do they have in common is scale, uh, geographic scale, population. Uh, th- th- these four polities are, qualitatively distinct than average states. There's about 193-odd states in the world today. The average state is looks something like Portugal or New Zealand or Denmark in terms of scale. And of course, China, India, the, and we may have a conversation about whether we ought to be counting the EU as a state, but the e, I am EU and the US. These are territorially much larger in terms of population much larger in terms of internal diversity much larger none of these entities will ever be a leaders might try but they will never be nation states in the sense that the populations constitute a single nation and then you you, we could move forward and say economic complexity too the 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 range and uh, Mm -hmm. volume of economic transactions within a, a country Uh, And then simply because of scale, you know, you're looking at more issues about internal dissension. You're looking at more ways in which enemies or rivals outside the country's border could come at you. So a range of vulnerabilities that are magnitude just by scale and complexity.
0: Well, yeah, but when when you say they can't be nation states, I mean, the U.S. is a nation state, isn't it?
1: There is an aspiration for it to be a nation state. But when you look at the red-blue divide today... Which is as I argue in the book, heavily rooted in geography, we sometimes think of it as an ideological dispute, but it's got it's an ideological dispute with that's grounded in geography to a large part. Those are populations that have different views about what constitutes the good life, what constitutes a just society, the role of government, and so on so that, I would argue and I do argue in the book that you know before 1920 1930 the dominant way of thinking about the United States the conventional way of thinking about politics in the states was that it was uh, composed of sections there was a famous uh, um, historian Frederick Jackson Turner who basically said you know it's a you you should think of the United States and he said this in 1933 you should think of the United States as being just like Europe. It's composed of sections. Each section is like a nation in Europe. And Congress in Washington is like a, a diplomatic session in which every section sends its diplomats to to Washington. And that was the prevailing way of thinking about politics in the U.S. right up until the New Deal. And then there was a notion that that had faded away. But I, I would argue that the what we see now is the red blue divide is in some ways a revival of that old sectionalist uh tendency. So so I would argue even in the US you can't take uh nationhood for granted.
0: Right. I mean I suppose if that red blue divide turned violent then then that would be a, a point in your favor in making this argument.
1: Well, I I guess we could ask whether it hasn't already turned violent, right, given the January 6th uh, insurrection.
0: Yeah. Uh, But but having said which, there is clearly a a, a huge difference between, let's say, uh, China, which may be the most unified of all these four you're talking about, and the EU with its very significant amount of decentralization.
1: Well, I think, uh, uh, let me, two points there. Uh, First about China. Uh, we shouldn't take in, internal unity, this sort of you know, uh, homogeneity for granted, even in China. Let's not forget that uh, China has, is, has its own project of homogenization, which it pursues in uh, Tibet, in Xinjiang, uh, which it's attempting to pursue in Hong Kong. It has aspirations with regard to Taiwan, even in the... What we might call the Chinese heartland. There's significant divisions between regions in terms of language and culture. So, uh, you, you know, the stability maintenance is the phrase that's commonly used uh, in in among the Chinese leaders uh, to talk about their priorities. And that's because even in China, they cannot take homogeneity, nationhood for granted. the The one argument I would make is that. You know, if we set up these four supersized polities and put them uh, together, uh, the the interesting thing for me is that I think in, leaders in all of these four places are grappling with similar questions, which is, um, how do you govern polities of this scale, in, in particular in some places? How do you do that while respecting uh, principles of human rights? But the interesting thing is that the solutions, and everyone is dealing with this sort of Background noise of fragility of instability, the consciousness that things could fall apart and and I think you can see leaders preoccupied with this question of stability in all four places um but the interesting thing is that the formulas they come up with are radically different you know the the Chinese are uh highly centralized the uh Indians are sometimes called a quasi federal system, but you know under Modi too it's becoming more centralized. Uh, the US is more federalized, and then, of course, the EU is uh, you know, much more loosely joined. But there are four different strategies for thinking about how you govern at scale.
0: Do, do you really think that European leaders are worrying about stability? I thought they're just worried about growth, really. I mean, their main thing is delivering higher rates of economic growth, isn't it?
1: Well, I think they are. The EU leaders do worry about about keeping the whole apparatus together, right? I mean, we've, we've had Brexit. We've had instances in which countries have rejected constitutional reforms uh, in referenda. Um, you know, this sort of question of will the EU survive has been uh, throughout its history a sort of chronic ref- refrain, uh, resistance yeah, guess, yeah. to the idea of ever closer union and so on.
0: Yeah and and then you get there's another sort of set of questions that come up with this cuz you've got the US EU China India uh, you know why isn't Russia there why isn't Brazil there
1: well that's right i mean that's and that's fair comment you know i so saw, i took the big four let's call it for simplicity one could say well let's go uh, one level down you would see another set of countries that are you know kind of close rivals there's other very large diverse countries uh brazil nigeria uh uh, indonesia and so on so there's about a set of uh, a few countries sort of in a second tier and one might argue that they deal with similar problems Uh, i would argue that you know it's interesting to focus on the big four, because that's where the, these questions of dealing with scale and complexity are are most pronounced. Um, even if we included a sort of second tier of three or four or five more countries, the critical point I would make is that there is a big difference between governing in polities like those and governing in the vast majority of of modern day states, where we're talking about a you know order of magnitude difference in scale and complexity. On Russia, I, I didn't include Russia. You know, so uh, I, I say in the book that actually H.G. Wells a hundred years ago or so was was talking about a future in which you would see the emergence of. He didn't have a word for it, but he basically said he was talking about these sort of supersized polities, and he counted Russia in the list. I don't. Granted, it has territorial scale. Um, it's got population diversity, not as much as the Soviet Union had. But in terms of uh, economic, uh, po- in terms of population, um, I- I've forgotten the exact figure for the-, the Russian population, but I believe it's in the low hundreds and population is- in growth in, in Russia is, is flat. And um, And in terms of economy, I've got the statistics in the book, you'll have to forgive me, I don't have them at hand, but I believe I'm right in saying, if you compare the the EU economy to the Russian economy, there's a sort of a tenfold difference.
0: Oh yeah, sure. The Russian economy is tiny, really, isn't yeah. it? Apart from its oil.
1: And, uh, but, and you know, that's a difference between you know, back in the in the early fifties, if you were comparing the U.S., the Soviet Union, and the uh, and Western Europe, it would have been a much closer race in terms of population and uh, economic scale. But it's completely disproportionate now.
0: Uh, that's what I want to get to a bit. Is this distinction between the superstates and imperial countries. So if you took the Soviet Union, for example, I mean, that would meet a lot of your uh, definitional, uh, you know, requirements for a super state, it's huge, it was diverse, it was com- complicated, and it fell apart, it was very fragile. But was it an empire?
1: Yes, yeah, it was both. And in fact, it was, you know, I sometimes wonder whether I should have used the phrase empire state rather than super state. But uh-huh. uh, I would argue it was in a way, a sort of prototype super state. And so, uh, and just to, to unpack the concept a bit, you know, these entities are like empires because of their, their, uh, uh, aspiration to exercise control over vast territory and diverse populations, but empires, you know, in a way by modern day standards did not do very much. They didn't try to overhaul the societies they governed. They didn't, uh, have any aspiration, for example, to respect or promote human rights. When the British were in India, they weren't engaged in massive projects of social improvement. So uh, empires had sort of limited notions about what they were trying to do in terms of sort of penetrating the territories they were governing. States, modern day states, are expected to live up to much higher standards. They're expected to know more about what's going on inside the country. They're expected to um, do more to kind of regulate economic activity in their borders, and they're expected to respect human rights. They're expected to, uh, you know, provide education, health care, other social services and so on. So there's a a heavier burden. And so the Soviet Union was, in a sense, it it was a successor to the Russian Empire in one sense. But it also had these notions about what it would do by way of economic planning and social improvement that were typical of a, of a modern day state, of a post-World War, you know, a, a mid-20th century modern state. And, and, I, I, and it had a particular formulation of how it was going to achieve these sort of twin goals of maintaining empire and, and fulfilling modern statehood, and, and it, it couldn't do it. And, and conspicuously, you know, there was a realization in the 1980s that the formula wasn't working, and it tried to turn course, and obviously, you know, couldn't make the turn. And as I say in the book, lots of leaders in other superstates looked at the Soviet example and, and one and, and drew lessons from that. So I, I sort of argue in the book that the Soviet Union was, a, you know, a warning to other leaders of other superstates about the challenges of the task they were facing.
0: Did, did your thinking about all of this lead you to any conclusions about why some super states are more expansionist than others? I mean, you know, if you've got the EU is, will be taking on new members um, in a very consensual way. But uh, yeah, nonetheless, that is that is one of its goals. I mean, the US adventures in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, suggested it, it did have ex- expansionary ideas. China, we don't know yet, I guess, and India, less so. It seems there's quite a variation on that. Have you sort of thought about that?
1: And I think, you know, one, a couple of things we've got going here is just geography to the extent that expansion actually is feasible. Um, And, um, and creed, you know, what's the, I argue in the book that, you know, every uh, super state has to, attempts to formulate some kind of creed that justifies its existence. And, and creed plays an important role, I think, in shaping the predisposition of a super state to expand or not uh, if you have a a creed for example that em- emphasizes human rights and the principle of self-determination, which I think is sort of core to the EU ethos that that's going to uh, limit your capacity to expand militarily, for example you know you you're you're expanding by consent and then there's just sort of the straight up limitations of what a a state is capable a super state uh, one of these large polities is capable of doing in terms of governance capabilities. I, I put a lot of emphasis in the book on the on the very practical limitations of what very large bureaucracies are capable of doing. you know how much exercise can effectively be uh, how much control can effectively be exercised by people at the center, given the limitations of of large-scale bureaucracy.
0: Yeah, well, let's talk a bit about those internal issues then. And and as you say, that is sort of interesting. And one of the obvious thoughts which you know, you discuss in the book is is technology helping people at the centre to have that kind of control. I mean, and we look at China, as the prime example of that with this amazing sort of facial recognition and all these complete control of the internet that no one else seems to have achieved, It, it suggests that technology can help these people.
1: Well, that's right. You know, it's an interesting question, uh, and I think, but I think the thing I would say is that it's it, we want to be careful not to move to judgment on that too quickly. Clearly, in all of these places, leaders are looking, uh, trying to figure out how to deploy new technologies to facilitate control, and uh, it is true that modern-day leaders have much more advanced um, systems of surveillance and communication and control than you know, uh, uh, leaders and empires did. So let's concede that point. But the flip side is that the population has access to technologies uh, as well. Imperial leaders were dealing mainly with populations that were overwhelmingly rural, illiterate, immobile and lacking access to information and communication technology. So that made their governance job of governance considerably easier compared to the leader of a modern-day state. In India, you've got uh, a billion cell phones out there. So the population itself is capable of communicating, mobilizing, organizing protests and social movements very rapidly. So the capacity of the population, it's more fluid, and it has an enhanced capacity to mobilize against the state if it, were, if it wanted to.
0: How do you reflect then on the, the Chinese example? It's funny, I was just talking to some Chinese students about the reality of their social media activity. And yeah, the key thing is none of it's anonymous. Although a few of them do have VPNs, meaning they can access foreign news, there is very, very little they can do within the country to communicate with anyone that is not monitored I mean actively monitored i mean you know it occurs to me that the chinese may be the only ones who've got the government governance capacity to do this uh and yeah you, know, you can't imagine an indian government getting it together to to do it but the, the, the technically the the chinese have so shown, shown you can do it and it must must uh, contribute to, towards their durability
1: well you know just parenthetically you know the, as an aside you know the indians are uh, attempting to use technology for to enhance control, uh, as well, you know, the attempt to develop sort of a, a central database of who's a citizen and who's not, the attempt to improve service delivery by electronic means, uh, the technique of using internet blackouts in Kashmir and uh, I believe uh, Mizoram recently. You know so the Indians are everybody's in the game you know in the in in the united states after nine eleven of course this was a big emphasis as well um in china the, let's concede that you know there there the chinese government uh has especially over the last twenty years ramped up its attempts to um, monitor the activity of its citizenry to to use uh, new technologies to control behavior. They've got a, a system, I believe, if I recall correctly, it's called the social credit system that they're attempting to roll out that sort of incentivizes state friendly behavior. And we should be alarmed by the the tendency there. You know, the the, the notion that we might have a sort of technology powered authoritarian model that becomes durable is something we should worry about. But but the other thing i think we want to flag is that this puts running this kind of apparatus puts intense pressure on the chinese bureaucracy you know bureaucracy isn't famous for being nimble it's not famous for sort of adapting quickly in the face of new technologies but that's precisely what the chinese state has to do it's you know as technolo- as technology moves as people become more clever in figuring out how to do workarounds within technology, the state has to respond. So it's, I don't know, what are we going to call it, cat and mouse or a foot race? At the moment, the Chinese state might seem to have the upper hand, but we don't know precisely how this will play out in the long run.
0: Let's look at another area which is relevant to state control, uh, oligarchs. Are they new? I mean, did the British Empire have oligarchs? Did the Soviets? Of oligarchs, I don't think so. In the same way that they exist now and seem to be a key source of power for the central authority. Well, that's that's an
1: interesting question. Well, now, are we going to count the British East India Company as a as Possibly. part of an oligarchy?
0: Possibly. Yeah. I mean, uh, relevant, but I don't know. Yes, I guess you would actually, because they, they were they were used to to enforce control at the local level. Yep.
1: And, Uh, uh, you know, and the Dutch had a similar enterprise, uh, so did the Portuguese, I believe.
0: But the Russian, the Soviets didn't. You know, I mean, there were a few, just very few businessmen. That was more to do with intelligence and that sort of thing. And they weren't used to exert control in a way that Putin needs these oligarchs to do that for him now. But, you know, an interesting question would be, and I
1: I concede I didn't uh, pursue it in the book, but um uh, you know one of the complaints against the modi government in in india is this its close connection with very powerful business houses and there's an extraordinary level of economic inequality um in india in uh, today after liberalization and and uh one might make the argument that part of his governing strategy is essentially maintaining close relationships with these powerful uh business houses these you know so called titans of industry um and uh, you could look at the American model and say de facto that uh, uh, you know corporate uh, the, the same sort of relationship goes on effectively between uh, the state and and major corporations and and you could pursue the question of whether this is part of a an attempt to you know maintain some degree I suppose in the American case you could look at the relationship between. Um, uh, Washington between financial regulators and the, and the major banks, for example, and and you know and then basically say, okay, is this uh, one of the ways in which Washington or Delhi uh, attempts to kind of maintain some kind of handle over an extraordinarily big economy?
0: Yeah, but again, I mean, I'm just wondering about it because Europe probably doesn't have that to the same degree. I guess they may have some corporations that are pan-european but not really and and uh so again it raises a question you know there are quite significant differences between the super states even though as you're pointing out they have things in common they do have things that are different
1: yeah well i i would yeah, so let me agree and disagree with you i i i think what might be interesting and and this is not my area of specialization would be to look at the 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 details of policy making in brussels and the forms of consultation and ask whether in fact large business houses in Europe have privileged access to the policy process, whether they become the sort of default people who are consulted on the formulation of regulations and so on, and whether they in fact have their own forms of influence in Brussels that would be comparable to the influence of major business houses in Delhi or Major, you know, banks and other corporations in Washington. So uh, that's the point at which I might push back and say there might be, it, 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 the details of it might might differ, but the substance of the relationship might prove to be the same.
0: Yes, I mean I think you're right about that. There, there's a lot of lobbying in um, in Brussels, and it, it, that does happen. But I, I so uh, well, maybe none of these uh, oligarchs in in the U.S. and Europe have the same function as maybe they do in Russia. Of actually. Being like the East India Company and, and sort of transmitting power down through the system to the local level, where, whereas you know I think maybe some of the Indian business houses you know they are useful politically to control populations.
1: But I think you know that the, the area where I'd agree with you is that all of these places are different. I, you know I, I basically the argument I make is that leaders face at base a certain set of uh, similar problems. These problems of governing at scale and diversity. But they make different calculations about how they're going to move forward. I mean, putting aside the Superstate's book and other books I've written, one of my major themes is that governance is an is an extraordinarily challenging task because you're faced with leaders are faced with complex circumstances and an extraordinarily high level of uncertainty. You know, uncertainty about about the world they're facing, uh, the world they're likely to face, and and uncertainty about what will happen if they choose one path or another. And so you're constantly making decisions under uncertainty. And and one result is that you get an immense amount of variation. And among super states, you've got leaders making the different calculations about the best way of moving forward, of of maintaining the entity and keeping it together and, and achieving their particular aspirations, whether it's prosperity or promotion of a particular notion of a just society. But they they end up with a variety of formulas. So and and part of that might be different calculations about how closely you have to ally with with you know so-called oligarchs with the with the with the the concentrated uh, the most powerful businesses in your in your territory.
0: And another issue you raise, which is very interesting, is you know, the dynastic dynastic tendencies of some of these superstates. Well, that's right, and of course this was a
1: chronic problem of. You know one of the I basically say in the book that i what I try to do is is say the governance formula in 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 any particular empire or super state has three aspects that we might be interested in. One is the structure of leadership the the one the second is the the structure of control and intensity and control, and the third is creed and I won't belabor all of those points, but certainly in empires, one of the difficulties was. Um, a dynastic tendency—you know—the leadership was very often inherited, and that had huge problems because uh, uh, you know you you couldn't be sure of the quality of the of the leader who who might succeed, and and you had these problems of kind of dem- um, uh, turmoil over succession and so on. It, one of the the frailties, I think, of any large polity is over concentration. That is, you attempt to. You you become too ambitious in terms of trying to exert control in your territory and you concentrate authority too much. And then you put tremendous pressure on the center and you run into potential difficulties of of overload. Uh, You put more pressure on Delhi or Brussels or Washington or Beijing than uh, leaders are capable of handling. They may not be up to it. They may not have the Administrative apparatus to support intelligent decision making. They may simply be overwhelmed by events. And then that's, I think, one of the main reasons that you you get into these problems of imperial or super state collapse.
0: Right. Well, that's very interesting because there's lots of commentary at the moment, isn't there, about Xi, Xi in China being too autocratic and too much power in his hands. You know, so despite all the technical control he's got, you, there's a vulnerability there. Exactly. And, you know, the. The the, the whole
1: sort of populist authoritarianism is not the Chinese model, but, you know, there is in many, in, uh, in other places, there's this sort of, we've seen recently this tendency towards sort of strong man or authoritarian rule, right? If only we had someone at the center who had, who could wield a firm hand and get things in order. And, and that tendency shows up in many places, not just China, but the predicament, especially in very large complex polities, is that there are real limits in what the center is capable of handling competently. And this is a question of what kind of personnel are selected at the center. And it's a straight up question of administration. In a, I'm a professor of public administration. That's where my orientation is. So when I when I look at these things, I ask myself like well, exactly how is this apparatus supposed to work?" And you can very easily see decision making getting clogged at the center because too much is is being pushed through uh, the analytic capacity it's is it's like having a computer that doesn't have the processing power to place all to resolve all the demands that are being put on it
0: in terms of creed, you know you you talk about control, we talked about that leadership in terms of creed. Yeah, you, you made the comment that the British Empire was hardly there for the benefit of the, the, the imperial subjects, which no one's going to disagree with. But the at the time, there was talk of the civilizing mission, wasn't there? And in in, in Iraq, I saw exactly the same thing, actually, I was covered the war there, and the Americans coming in were talking about democracy and bringing democracy to the heathens and so on, in exactly the same way as the British Empire had. And those ideas seem to be less powerful nationalism. You know, if you're an effective super state uh, leader you'd probably prefer in this day and age go for nationalism rather than the civilizing mission wouldn't you
1: well i think you know the every creed one of my my general themes that you know i mentioned these three dimensions that 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 leaders are sort of thinking about when they're trying to figure out how they're going to structure and justify their state you know i mentioned how do we organize central control is it going to be Um, tightly held, is power going to be tightly held at the top or more loosely held? You know, what degree of control are we going to try to exercise over society? Are we going to try to regulate the economy and society tightly, or are we going to be fairly loose and tolerant about social and economic behavior? And then there's this element of creed, what's our story? Um, And these three elements are obviously um, connected, but the but every choice you make is is filled it is uh uh has dilemmas associated with it you know if you follow the authoritarian model in your leadership you uh are vulnerable to the problem of overload at the center um if you uh take a a, a policy of very tight control over your population in one dimension or another you put tremendous pressure on your bureaucracy and you run into problems of bureaucratism you also raise the possibility of public pushback against your authority you know uh, the reaction in the west to vaccine mandates is a is a recent example of that sort of problem and then creed too is a problem too you know the, you've got to have some story that justifies what you're doing that that story is going to shape what your state will do but you can run into difficulties if you take your creed, you know, extraordinarily seriously. If you, if you become too evangelical about the notion of of promoting democracy, you run into trouble, as the United States has done. Modi is is attempting a shift in the national creed in uh, in India away from the sort of liberal democratic secular creed that typified the era of Nehru, for example, to a a creed that emphasizes Hindu nationalism, he's he's actually attempting, I think, to push toward something like a nation state. That has trade-offs and complications as well. It's a question of whether, I think his notion is that it will reinforce social stability and internal coherence, but it may backfire on him and actually aggravate internal divisions.
0: Let's just uh, look at a couple of issues. Finally, uh, looking way ahead, and they're slightly imponderable, but nonetheless uh, quite interesting. One is, you know, all these superstates are spending a lot on military expenditure. Does the history of empire, does the, you know, the thinking you've done about superstates tell us anything about whether they will end up fighting wars with each other?
1: I think, for me, the major threat, and, and you know, if I were, if I had more time to, if I were doing, if I were adding another chapter to the book. I would say that the major threat to for all four of these polities is climate change, the the growing climate emergency. You know, in the past, emp- there are empires that have collapsed because of the effects of climate change, and, and I should say too. By, by the way, you know the story I tell in the book is that there's never one explanation of imperial collapse. It's usually a combination of factors. I, I call it a cascade of hazards. A set of problems that sort of collide and compound with one another. The vocabulary today might be a polycrisis. Um, the polycrisis is what's fatal for superstates, just as it was for empires and and for leaders. One of the things you absolutely want to do is is avoid a situation in which you are dealing at the same time with multiple serious threats. But I think climate change uh, is going to be a profound threat to the internal stability of all four of these polities. India, in particular, will be hit very hard by uh, climate change over the next uh, 30 years. And and I think we could expect that'll, that will show up in a bundle of different ways, and it will compound other challenges within the Indian polity, for example, regional uh, tensions that have been less active in recent years china south china will be hard hit by climate change in europe you know you're already seeing the effects of climate change in terms of the relationship between uh, europe and north africa and the middle east and in the united states climate change is going to hit very hard in the south and southwest so i think uh, this is going to be kind of a destabilizing tendency in in all four of these places and uh i'm originally from canada so if i were in a country like canada what I would expect going forward is to say, well, you know, all of these major players are going to be increasingly preoccupied with problems of internal stability over the next 30 years. They're going to be increasingly concerned with the general question of how do we just hold things together.
0: One last thought. You've talked about centralization and, you know, in these super states. Do you, do you foresee a world? Is is there a trend towards a world government? Can you can you see things going in that way?
1: Uh, no, I can't see that happening. Uh,
0: because uh,
1: the well, because I think it, it, uh, in terms of the the you know the formal transfer of authority, coercive capacity to a, a global authority. I was about to say not in my lifetime, but that's not saying a hell of a lot. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, when you think about it, the 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 questions of whether a central authority could competently govern at that scale, you know, the the whole all the the whole question of of overload, the capacity of a central authority just to think intelligently about the challenges facing it, the capacity to manage profound differences in priorities between different parts of the world the the capacity to to manage resistance against the exercise of central authority you know if if people hate washington or brussels today how would they feel about a you know a uh a a global central authority i don't know where it would be davos maybe um the (laughs) we know how that story would play out and 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 i think the other point i would make too is it's it's is that it would be a bad idea to just in terms of policy to go down that route. I I think that the way you assure you construct states that are um, resilient and capable of honoring human rights and capable of thriving is by avoiding over centralization by by finding some formula where sub sub central governments have robust authority and that's, you know, I I basically make the argument that the world you want to look at is one that looks more like the EU than it does China.
0: Okay, well, thank you very much for talking us through your very interesting book. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you.